Milvoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Dr. Matthew Muir is a practicing veterinarian based out of Sydney, Australia. He began work as a mixed animal general practitioner in Griffith, Australia, where he developed strong skills in orthopedic and soft tissue surgery, dermatology, and nutritional counseling. Matthew then moved to the United Kingdom, where he performed out-of-hours emergency and critical care work at a Royal Veterinary College top-tier hospital. Soon after, he began consulting in wellness and internal medicine. Late last year, when my dog Colby was diagnosed with bone cancer, Matthew and his team helped me determine the best medical plan to manage it. Now, as word about Colby's illness has spread and more and more people reach out to me with questions about the health of their own dogs, I felt it was best to sit down with Matthew to let him do the talking. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss cancer prevention and management, diet and nutrition, and more. To book Dr. Matthew and his team for remote consulting, visit www.naturalvet.com.au. I grew up in regional New South Wales, oh, okay. uh, a town called Griffith, seven hours uh, west from Sydney. I've heard of Griffith. Really? Is there fishing or hunting there? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a, a lot of, um, there's a lot of feral animals and a lot of control and uh, yeah, it's regional. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> and then yeah. what prompted you to get into veterinary practices? Yeah. So I was the, you know, typical kind of kid who, so I said I wanted to be a vet when I was three. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I... I grew up with a lot of pets, um, spent a lot of time on farms and just grew up really in nature. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as I went through school, I was sort of biology resonated with me and, you know, moving forward into university, it was pretty clear to do veterinary all along. Uh, and then I think while I was at uni, the challenges of studying veterinary medicine made me quite interested in integrative health, nutrition, and more of the holistic approach because that's how I navigated six years of uni and a dissertation was, you know, looking after myself with natural medicine. And so then when I started working as a vet after doing a dissertation in nutrition, I moved into general practice, uh, mixed practice actually in Griffith for two years before I went overseas for five years. And with that, um, as I started into my career, I started to think, okay, what what did I see growing up on farms? What did I do for my own pets? And, you know, how did I feed my dog, um, you know, going and foraging milk thistle for my birds and things as a kid. And so, when I started working as a vet, I started to see patterns of disease particularly and, you know, ways of feeding animals particularly that I just thought weren't really working. And so, over the last decade, up to m- most part of a decade, I've moved into integrative medicine now. And I really identify that that came from my background in Griffith, um, being in the bush, you know, being more immersed in nature maybe than what would be the case if I was in a city. Yeah. What would be an example of something that you have seen that wasn't working? So when... I went to uni and learned my basic nutrition. I say basic because within a veterinary degree, there's not a lot of time spent on nutrition. The concept of you must feed uh, dog food from a bag and that only for your pet's life. Don't feed any table scraps. Don't feed any bones. Just feed this food from a sterile metal bowl. When I 
compared that with what I had seen on farm and what I'd seen, you know, um, my grandfather used to bring home cuts of meat. He was, he worked at an abattoir and, you know, raw meat and throwing meat on the lawn for a dog, um, you know, feeding dogs, you know, whole prey and things like that. That was, that was kind of my past. And so when I started working as a vet, the first vet that I ever worked for, he basically said to me, if you're trying to investigate a skin problem in a dog, if they're feeding, you know, a certain proprietary brand of pet food from the supermarket which I won't mention don't bother doing any more work until unless they move off that food it's a waste of time the skin won't get better because of the at the time artificial preservatives and things which are still used a lot but not as much so that's probably the biggest thing was you know the impact of uh, a more natural approach which is more normalized I think in the country you know uh, getting food out of the veggie patch and you know meat from someone who's on the land and using that to feed animals versus more of the approach that I learned at uni. That's probably the biggest difference. Where do you think that came into play though? Because naturally, I mean, for years, forever, we've always lived off of the land. So was it politics without going too deep down a rabbit hole here? Yeah, I mean, can you go pretty deep? <laughs> I, I think it's, um, you know, fast moving consumer goods, um, you know, uh, pet, the uh, pet food industry, I guess, you know, post-industrialization of the world, we all got really excited about convenience and apparent simplicity and utilizing science and things. And I think that we probably just developed a little bit too far. And so we're going, I guess, you know, realizing that the it's a short time in history of a way that we've lived, both humans and animals. And we, you know, lifestyle diseases, the white death, as we call it with say the sugar epidemic and things like that. I mean, I think pet food's just a reflection of, uh, you know, humans got too um, time savvy for their own good. Yeah. And we'll talk about pet food in a bit. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the word integrative. Yeah, so integrative is probably the more medical um, terminology from holistic. Integrative and integration really talks about looking at utilising different modalities of treatment and usually encompassing both Western conventional orthodox medicine um, and elements of traditional medicine systems and different modalities, which can range from the more, I think, apparent ones when people think about holistic vets or integrative vets normally is things like acupuncture, herbal medicine, but it can be a whole range of modalities that involve myofascial like massage therapy, behavioral modification. You know, there, there's a whole range of inputs, environmental medicine. So sort of uh, looking at what uh, environment pets live in and sort of coming together and, and trying to bridge the, the gap between science and tradition of, you know, what's perceived as traditional generally in the East and, you know, scientific in the West, um, but ultimately realizing that the gaps are getting stronger and you know the the research is emerging at an exponential rate particularly with herbal medicine which is a, generally a big part of integrative medicine i just want to set the stage for people listening and provide some context sure last year yeah late last year colby my dog a lot of listeners know who colby is was diagnosed with bone cancer and i found out that he i mean the vet said he had two weeks to four months to live and by the way you're flying to australia in a week so you know good luck with that. And I was really stressed out and was given the name of your guys's clinic because I was told that you practice some, you know, holistic medicine, but also conventional medicine. And so I find that a lot of the time when I'm explaining to people what you do or, you know, how you've helped me, I'm always having to say to them, oh, but he also practices conventional medicine. Like, I feel like there's this part of me that has to 
justify or, or really explain that he's not this hippy dippy just herbal medicine. He also understands Western medicine. Sure. Do you yeah. find is that normal? Do you find some people listen to you talk about herbal approaches and they kind of tune it out because they associate it with being, I don't know. A hippy-dippy? Look, yeah, I think it depends who you talk to. It depends how desperate people are often because when people have, like in your instance, had a, like a catastrophic diagnosis, people tend to be a lot more open-minded. Um, but yeah, look, it really, when it comes to it, there's a massive continuum of like what's deemed like ultra-conservative and ultra-alternative in holistic medicine. There's a huge continuum. Like many practitioners who are um, would describe themselves, I guess, as conventional might say, well, I'm holistic. Like I ask, you know, is the pet stressed? I ask like what they're feeding. I pay attention to their body weight and things like that. Then, you know, so then where people get sort of well, like identify themselves on that continuum or be like considered on that uh, continuum, because I think what you're sort of saying, I, it does resonate with me that normally myself and my colleagues are normally put further onto the continuum of alternative per se and, you know, using techniques that are very different from Western medicine. When I started looking at integrative and alternative medicine, um, yeah, so integrative for a bit more understanding usually encompasses complementary and alternative medicine. So complementary medicine tends to be like adding on top of uh, a Western standard of care, like gold standard medicine as a layer on top of, of conventional medicine. Whereas alternative is deciding based on, you know, a family's philosophy or financial um, decisions or what the animal can tolerate. Um, alternative medicine often is actually saying, this is what is proposed to be the conventional standard of care, um, but we're totally not going to do that. We're, we're going to move to a different use of medicine alternatively. So yeah, a lot of the time people both coming here, colleagues, insurance companies, uh, you know, sometimes don't see that uh, it's it's a layer on top. And when I started looking at alternative and complementary medicine when I was at university, I joined like the, um, the student in interest group for the Australian Vet Association in acupuncture. I was doing my revision for my exams and, and looking at uh, the case reports and things that were coming through in acupuncture. And the first thing with the acupuncturists that really stood out was that their Western medicine assessment, diagnosis assessment, treatment plans that they did first were super thorough and really good. And so when it comes to deciding about using different modalities and complementary alternative medicine, there needs to be a really good basis of like, what is the diagnosis? What is the, the outcomes? Whether you do nothing, do the gold standard, of care in conventional medicine, whether it involves like referral to a specialist or whether it's something a GP vet can uh, safely handle. If you don't understand that, you can't really explore the risks and benefits of doing something on top of that. And that's often, yeah, something that people don't realize that in order to say, uh, I'm going to stand up and take responsibility to say that I think that this pet may do better for longer uh, with better health, energy, vitality using a herbal medicine versus the drug drug, even though the drug's more registered and has more levels of evidence. And it's really important in our field that we don't sell false promise and we don't perpetuate misinformation or misguided information because it's very relevant to human medicine, that we need to be able to you know, no medicine as a whole. And so that's the essence of holistic medicine anyway, is understanding uh, as much as possible. Yeah. When you sent me that report, I'll start from the beginning because people who don't know have no idea what I'm talking about. 
Colby started limping. And it was because he and I were out bushwhacking as we always do. And so when I brought him into the vet, the vet said, I noticed that his knuckle or his wrist above his front paw is really swollen. And I think it's probably a tumor. And so we went and did x-rays. And sure enough, I got the call that it was indeed bone cancer. And so I was just an absolute wreck. And this girl I know messaged me and she said, Jennifer Ostero, I know you're listening right now. This is for you. She was like, you get off your ass. You're stronger than this. You need to fight for him. You've always fought and now you really need to fight. So she sent me out that package of medicine, which we'll talk about later, that I, I brought in. It was yes. a compilation of different herbs and vitamins. A care package. A care package, yeah. yeah. And then she said, and call my vet friend in Alberta and she'll give you a recommendation of someone in Australia. And that's how I landed here. So I came in to see you. I was distraught. And you had and your team had put together a document for me to read. I don't know how many pages it was, but it was a lot. It was like 15 pages. Do you know how many pages those usually Generally, yeah, 10, 10 12, 15. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when I read it, I cried and felt like I'd been punched in the gut because you guys didn't bullshit. You were very straightforward about what I was looking at. Mm -hmm. And you said, this is what he's got. These are what your expectations should be. And these are what our options are. And the options were basically chemotherapy and amputation. And you explained why that probably wasn't the best option in a dog of, you know, Colby's almost 11 years old this September. Mm -hmm. I should note we're filming right now in August. He was diagnosed in December. You guys said for his age, maybe you should consider an alternate approach. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. And I want to make it broad. I don't want to just focus on on my dog because everyone's got, you know, different breeds and stuff. So if we can just kind of make the conversation general, that'd be That'd be great. Yeah, happy to. I think there's a lot of people that can benefit from hearing, you know, um, a different story, different insight. So yeah, yeah. And, and it is different for everybody. I mean, for me, I'll be honest, it was really inspiring to go online and read, you know, the vet gave me two weeks and it's been two years. That mm -hmm. was really inspiring for me. And, and knock on wood, as of this date, I am one of those people. But I understand that not, you know, I, I've been reached out to by maybe 20 people since then who have said to me, you know, can you please share your plan or let us know what you're doing? And then, you know, a week later I get the call that their dog's gone. Yeah. So it doesn't work for everybody or maybe it doesn't, not everybody gets to it in time or there's so many different variables. So that's kind of my disclaimer. And I know you're going to have a similar disclaimer that everybody's story is going to be different, right? Yeah. Look, I mean, that is the essence of, um, of medicine is that personalized medicine for dogs, um, you know, individualized medicine uh, encompassing the whole life history of a pet, you know, where they're at, how they digest their nutrients, what exactly the type of cancer is, if it's cancer or other health problems. I mean, there's rarely a protocol that we do twice in this practice. It's not one size fits all. And so replicating it one protocol from one animal to another often doesn't work. Um, and that's a big problem in medicine because on a population basis, often that needs to be done. So for the purposes of today, I think it's important that, you know, it is about general information and about sort of questions to, to start thinking about. There's a lot more research that needs to be done to better clarify integrative care, integrative veterinary medicine for sure. But the thing is that um, veterinary medicine has a lot 
to go. Like overall, it has a lot more research that's required. And this I'll, I'll t- touch on later some reasons why it's quite exciting for veterinary medicine at the moment. But one thing that I'd say is that there's more meta-analysis and systemic reviews, which in scientific terms means like very high level evidence uh, and looking at, you know, really uh, evaluating the literature that's out there. There's more meta-analysis and literature reviews for herbal medicine comparatively across all species, including humans, than there is for veterinary medicine. Really? Yes. So, you know, there's a lot more literature and it's uh, literature's coming out at a exponentially huge rate. The the research it's it's mind-boggling. The people listening primarily have hunting and fishing dogs. Mm-hmm. Are they different? Do they go through different stresses on their bodies than, say, the average house dog? I think so. I think for better or for worse, in some instances, um, you know, fresh air, oxygen from running, like, you know, there's a lot of pros to that lifestyle. There's also, you know, wear and tear and the potential for more hazards and access to perhaps different pollutants, etc. So it's really a, a trade-off. But yeah, overall, I think, you know, the domestic dog by and large has, you know, access like overall have the same health problem, which tends to be metabolic induced inflammation and oxidative stress. So really uh, deep level, um, you know, we can normally implicate uh, most of the time. I used to say that the biggest problem, um, the one disease that we we see in in veterinary medicine is immune system dysfunction. And that kind of encompasses everything, which I I still think to a large extent that immune system balance um, is, is super important on a very holistic level. But now Days, what we're seeing is that meta-inflammation or metabolic inflammation from insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, which is you know a huge encompassing topic in human medicine, is the same thing that we're seeing in our animals. Okay, so if we were to look at everything that we're discussing from this point forward from a prevention stance, yeah. what would that mean? What, what would a person have to do to ensure that their dog was safe in that scenario with cancer do you think or or preventing inflammation and immune system functions probably you know the big ticket item i would say for people to shift their focus to um i think that it encompasses nutrition as core i think it's you know regardless of what scientific studies people talk about i think it's inarguable that nutrition's the foundation for health i think um you know that's i think that's has a traditional basis. Um, Can we uh, talk about that before you go to the next point? Yeah. I mean, I was told when I was back in Canada to go raw. Mm -hmm. So I did. It was a little bit stressful because I was in camp. I didn't have food processors to blend things up or access to a lot of the ingredients. So I started buying the patties. Yeah. And again, they were, they were good. They were very expensive. I didn't know how sustainable it was going to be for our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And then you guys introduced me to a dehydrated brand in, from New Zealand. Yes. And I believe, because I've had people in North America reach out to me, and I believe they can buy it in North America as well. I think so. What's it, Canine? So it's Canine Natural is the freeze-dried formula that we'd recommend when the logistics and the lifestyle. And that's another thing when I'm talking about one-size-fits-all approach and that there isn't one, is that it depends on the lifestyle. It depends on the budget <laughs> for big dogs, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so a freeze-dried raw food, which has been microbiologically tested to ensure that it's not harboring a lot of salmonella and campylobacter and other food poisoning items that some people might raise, particularly some vets will raise concerns about with feeding a raw-based diet. That is often mitigated by feeding this style of diet. Um, and yeah, so it, it's kind of got the convenience of a kibble, but it has a lot less processing. Um, so it's a natural diet. And with with my approach to talking about, going back to your question about how do we prevent inflammation disease in pets, um, I think that moving to a natural diet is where I normally, my stance is. And natural can in- incorporate cooked, minimally processed cooked. So, you know, cooked on a, 
on a stovetop, it can be raw, um, it can be freeze dried, but it hasn't been heated to, you know, more than 400 degrees centigrade um, or a thousand like a lot of the kibble is. And so within within natural feeding, we tend to look at um, species appropriate nutrition. So using ingredients that might replicate what a wolf would eat in the wild, um, which wolves, grey wolves have normally 32 ingredients in their intestines when they've been assessed. So, you know, they're foraging, um, they're omnivorous, they generally prefer meat, but they might eat different things through the year. So in captivity, inverted commas, then we're looking at using a natural diet, which um, within natural, there's a lot of options. There's a lot a lot of marketing jargon to, to navigate, definitely. And I should note um, that when you guys put me on that food, you don't even sell it here. I mean, maybe you do, but you have not... This isn't like a sales pitch. You have told me where to buy certain things. It's not like you're making any money off of the decisions that I'm making here. So I just don't want anyone listening thinking this is a sales pitch. This Mm. podcast is literally just to try to prevent other people from having to go through the pain of, you know, losing a dog too soon. Yeah, I mean, the main thing, like, uh, as a veterinarian and, yeah, not trying to be a salesperson, I mean, we do carry some things, but really for convenience and, you know, it's not our business model. I mean, what we want to try and, um, you know, help people with is, is you know, is saying this is our experience, um, you know, uh, pay for my professional time, like, listen to what my opinion is if you want it, you know, take it on board if you do or if you don't, that's okay. But, you know, really, the reason that I want to do this podcast is to say, I'm having these conversations with families like I did with you um, when we first met and since uh, all day, every day. I'd love to see more people, but I can't. There's only so many families that uh, an individual vet can help with. So the the purpose of sort of using social media positively to get stories out and, and you know, we live in a, you know, an age of technology and an age of information. Um, but I think we're just really starting to collaborate and cooperate to really use the power of being able to have conversations like this and reach a wider audience and help more pets, um, more families. Thank you for that. And thank you for this, by the way. Yeah, I'm happy to help. Yeah, I like talking about this stuff. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay, so back to the diet then. So, because it's intimidating. I remember trying to cook raw for Colby nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I needed to have pollen of this and spira of that and all these things that I had no idea what they were. When you say 32 ingredients... I mean, can you just walk me through someone who's literally never heard of raw food right now and they want to get started tomorrow? So what I would say is um, don't put the pressure on yourself to do it, um, you know, how some people are doing it. I think people particularly come to our practice and they're, you know, trying to follow a formula um, or follow someone's, you know, approach to how they feed their dog on what they might share on their social media with some of the photos of their food bowls and things. And people feel a lot of the time really inadequate that they're not doing a good enough job. I think the the important thing, the, the biggest thing that I would say, if someone really wants to do home prepared nutrition for their pet, all the power to them, but it works best under like individualized nutritional counseling. So, um, and that's not, and when I say nutritional counseling, it's asking people, how are you coping with it? Are you okay? Do you want to swap back to something else that you can manage? And a lot of the time uh, I'm navigating a, how's the pet doing on that style of feeding? Because if someone says 80, 10, 10, you need to do 80% of this, 10% of this, 10% of this, it may not work for that dog. That dog might need 70, um, 20, 10 or needs more veg, needs more fiber. This dog needs more meat. This dog needs, um, you know, this dog has a higher requirement for, you know, some complex carbs based on their, like their digestive power if it's age related. So to do a home prepared diet is a huge conversation. Normally, 
Usually I sort of say that it it should be done with the help of someone that's experienced with it. And I think there is a lot of help on the internet for doing it. I just, when I'm on a lot of these um, raw feeding forums and communities and, you know, I learn things on there as well. Um, however, I think that it can create a lot of stress and people can be either too relaxed about it or too paranoid about you know nutrient balance and things it's harder than what people think because yeah there's a lot of different ingredients and the thing to bear in mind is that not every mouthful has to be complete and balanced but like over a day or over a week it should have some balance but variety tends to be key so normally when i'm trying to empower families to do natural feeding or some combination of commercial and home prepared i'm normally giving guidelines like i rarely give someone uh, excel spreadsheet and say you need to follow this every time and other ways to build up nutrients in in the the body um, can be you know having a base diet which is something that's fed with potentially commercial or home prepared that's a base diet and they're adding superfoods on top of that and um, and cycling through different nutrients and things when we talk about how do we use nutrition to prevent cancer or you know um, uh, prevent inflammation um, which I think inflammation and cancer and immune system and cancer are being increasingly linked um, and uh, reduce metabolic stress. The biggest thing that I normally say is um, keep the diet low glycemic index. And this is a, you know, there's a lot of information on glycemic index on the internet because it's, you know, the foundation of diabetes care, which is obviously, you know, a huge issue in human medicine and, and nowadays in veterinary. Keeping the diet low glycemic index uh, using ingredients that are, that are whole foods and ingredients that dogs should eat based on what they should eat in the wild. As we've domesticated dogs, we have... Um, like they have got a lot of metabolic flexibility to eat a lot of foods that we eat and a lot of refined foods and things. But it's my opinion and that of many uh, holistic practitioners or integrative practitioners that they might survive on that, but they don't necessarily thrive. Right. Yeah. So that's the big thing. Yeah. What about eating carrion, like eating, you know, dead animals, mm. even though they can eat a dead deer in the wild that's been sitting there for a week, can they do that? here or will they get sick? It depends on what the microbiome of and the acid levels are doing in the digestive tract of the dog. Um, my dog could find a bone that he ate six months ago, which nowadays people uh, you know, uh, have a hypothesized that dogs bury bones to create, to ferment them and create probiotics. So they're kind of manufacturing their own doggy kimchi. Do you um, think that's true? Because Colby uh, does that. I, I, think it's, I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility that they know that they're fermenting. I mean, probably storing um, uh, for and caching it's probably more of a biological drive for them but I think that it, you know it's an interesting one um, certainly that puppies chewing on shoes and things has also been speculated to be a puppy trying to get the right gut microbiome as well so they're, they're, they're doing that or chewing eating a, a range of weird things might be that they're really just trying to get their um, gut microbiome correct yeah don't get me started talking about the microbiome because you won't stop me um, so whether or not a dog can eat what a wolf can eat in the wild depends on how robust their digestive tract is. It depends on what the microbiome is doing, what the acid levels are like in the stomach and what the acid production is like in the colon. So two dogs could eat the same meal, which could have a lot of bacteria or maybe bacterial toxins in it. And one dog might get a really exaggerated response, a really clinically unwell response from that. Whereas another dog who's kind of used to that, it could be really fine. And generally, 
generally, if you take a dog that's been eating dry food from a bag that's, um, you know, been cooked to a thousand degrees centigrade and, you know, open and served to your pet, we've shown that dogs that are eating more of a raw diet have a different and more diverse gut and bacterial population, which is more robust and different types of bacteria. Um, they might be able to essentially microwave what goes into their um, digestive tract better than a dog that's just been fed more of a sterile food. So there may be a problem nowadays that we're kind of bubble wrapping the inside of our dog. And that's why a lot of dogs can't eat and carry on um, that, you know, a wolf might stumble upon a deer carcass um, and eat. But bear in mind, if it's like somewhere in Canada, you know, where it's it's essentially been frozen, the bacterial levels might be a bit different to elsewhere. Right. Um, oh, it is so you know, African, situational. Yeah. I mean, African wild dogs, um, you know, eat carrion. And, you know, some of them probably do get sick and some of them may die, but, you know, they've probably been genetically selected as well in the wild that they can, you know, eat more um, more carrion. It's always medicine, such a gray area. Like as soon as you talk in terms of black and whites, it gets, it gets pretty dangerous. What about when I was feeding Colby deer meat and he's already got some excess weight on him and his temperature is up and we're trying to get it down. It was incredible. You looked at his tongue, which was purple at the time. And you said, uh, yeah, deer meats, you know, a warm meat. What did you mean by that? By it's a warm meat? Yeah. So, and warm for him because it depends on the dog as well, but um, certain like digesting different foods will create, and this is um, uh, normally comes under the banner of like herbal energetics, digesting different foods will create different heat in your body. Um, and it doesn't necessarily translate to, you know, is it spicy or is it hot, etc. It's it's a difficult one to really um, put our finger on, on how this happens in the body. But say if you eat like, a steak versus a salad, you will probably feel hotter from eating the the steak versus the salad. Um, it probably has to do with the biochemical approach to having to digest those foods. If you have a cup of ginger tea, you will feel warmer after having that tea. And it's not really got to do with the temperature of the water. It's to do with the um, properties of the ginger that warm up the body. It's really, you know, looking at a, at a dog and saying that, you know, there's like red meat is generally considered hotter. Deer, you know, different people have different opinions on deer some people say, all right, it's um, it's an animal that has to think a lot. Um, so their omega-3 levels are higher. So it's not hot like it would be if you're eating, you know, corn-fed beef. It's hotter, things like that. So it's it's a, so a little bit contentious. But I'm just like in shock right now because I never have even heard of that. That's incredible. Yeah. So because deer are always on point because everything in the world is trying to eat them. Yeah, that they, t- they have higher omega-3 in their meat. And also that they like what an animal eats dictates how much omega-3 is in their meat. So even grass-fed beef versus um, corn fed or, or um, uh, feedlot beef has a completely different omega-3 profile in their fat. Talk to me about the filler thing. I assumed I needed to get them off of pellet food because of this thing called filler. Fillers, yes. What are fill? I mean, I know what fillers are, but I mean, is that real or is that just a bunch of marketing? What are oh, it's it's a it's a dangerous landscape between good and bad with fillers. Um, you know, it it's really trying to determine like how quality, particularly the fiber sources that are used in pet food. What are the um, standard fillers when people read the dog food bags? They're trying to steer clear of corn. What are the other fillers so, that they put in? Yeah, corn's not necessarily a filler. It's more used as a like protein dense cereal, which creates a lot of starch um, is the big problem there. A, a, a thing called Maillard reaction products with corn, um, which people can read about and probably get quite shocked about. But fillers tend to be, you know, the use of fibres to improve the gut microbiome. But a lot of fillers that are used um, and why it's difficult to navigate when you just look at a bag of food tends to be that people can use sawdust 
chicken feathers. Sawdust? Yes. In yeah. food? Yes, as a to, to bulk up the food and have it as like a, a indigestible fiber to help support the gut bacteria in the colon. Um, whereas some people are using really good prebiotic fibers like chicory, beet pulps coming under a bit of contention at the moment because it might be caught up in a issue where dogs are getting heart disease from a type of grain-free diet. They haven't really elucidated what that is yet, but that's certainly happening in the States at the moment. Um, a big study on that. I think UC Davis are heading that up. But different um, pulps and binding agents that kind of bulk up the food a little bit. And, and so um, what you can be left with is uh, essentially meat-flavoured bread um, with sawdust as, as a super premium pet food currently. Um, that's not even the cheap stuff at Walmart? Mm, no. That's really scary. No, what no. about the cheap stuff at Walmart that's 20 bucks a bag? What's that primarily? I mean, if you look at the first probably five five ingredients on an ingredient panel, you know, often when I'm in, I try not to be in those stores very often, but like going to, if I go and look at, you know, a cheap pet food and look at it, it's normally a cereal byproduct, uh, rendered meat, mixed meat. And I've been to a rendering plant at an abattoir. Um, if everyone's, if anyone's ever been there, it's, it's pretty disgusting. Um, it's a huge vat, like a two-story vat of, you know, um, meat and things that go in and, and what comes out is a meal or, you know, a gelatinous substance that's, that's a, a meat byproduct. And so when you're looking at these ingredients, normally what you'll find is it'll say cereal byproduct, or it'll split up all of the different cereals. So it'd be like wheat, rice, corn, soy. That's a legume, it's not a cereal, but you know, it'll have all of those and then it'll have meat somewhere in there. If it's not something, and I can't remember where the FDA uh, is at with this, but if it's not, if it's if it says like lamb, it needs to be something like 75% skeletal muscle meat or, or beef, etc. But otherwise, meat byproducts, offal byproducts, all of these products, when you look at that and you say, oh, all right, that's the top five ingredients in here. Legally, that's, you know, you have to look at the top five because they can kind of use mathematics and water weights to really kind of change things up a little bit. You normally have that and then you have a bunch of synthetic sounding names of vitamins and minerals um, which is normally what happens is the food's cooked to high temperatures formed into a little ball a lot of starch in it to glue it all together which causes the insulin resistance and the diet driven inflammation and then because that cooking process denatures a lot of the um, biological nutrients and phytonutrients and vitamins and things then they just add that back in as a premix um, synthesized that is so terrifying. And to that's me. just normally pet food. What about hunters and anglers? What can we do? Can we feed our dog fish bones? Like, can we grind up our fish bones and fish skins? Is there anything we can do to utilize a lot of the mm. stuff that we're keeping? I mean, it's, it probably depends on where and what you're fishing um, with regards to parasites and fish. You have to be a bit careful. Generally, uh, like normally what I say to people, that the best thing that you can add to a pet's food to boost up the nutritional content and add more nutrients um, is sardines and eggs once or twice a week. Um, that definitely brings up the vitamin D, which is important uh, and particularly important to bone cancer, actually. Colby's um, on that right now. He loves that, by the way. The Sar sardines. sardines yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, rarely do dogs not like it. So it's a punch of omega three it's got some calcium and it has a lot of vitamin d in it um, which dogs need to get a lot more through their food um, than from the sun they can only get a little bit from their coats so fish yeah i think it needs to be considered on an individual basis what um, about venison and i'm going to ask yeah. you something totally as a side note and a lot of people who don't live in australia probably won't be able to wrap their heads around this but 
I mean, they cull deer here in Australia. The other day, they killed 7,000 of them from helicopters, mm -hmm. and they just leave these animals to rot in the yeah. mountains. Could the pet food industry not be utilizing these deer? I've looked at that. I've looked at that because I'm, I actually did some study in sustainable food development and do, uh, do some consulting and actually have now co-founded a, a pet food company, which isn't the one that I sold you as well. So, you know, I, I'll have to talk. You know, um, <laughs> I've looked at sustainable um, food. Um, you know, I, come, I grew up in the bush, um, you know, goats, camels, other species, deer, they, they could be used a lot more. Um, there has been a couple of incidences where like camel meat has had a toxin that I think it's called edisip. Discapine, I think is how it's pronounced, not quite sure, but there was a toxin that came up in camel meat. So that rendered it sort of dangerous for use in pet food, um, caused kidney issues in dogs. But that was, uh, I think, a regional basis, is depending on what the plants that the camel were eating. Deer, I think that, yeah, I mean, there, sh there should be more utilization of feral animal species for the pet food. Um, New Zealand did it for a while. They um, did for pet food? Yeah, yeah. Um, I won't talk about what animal it was because it's this is a. Uh, you know, in Australia, people get a bit touchy about this, but let's say it was an Australian native animal that was introduced to New Zealand. So, you know, that, you know, this is this model's been happening for a while. I guess the main thing in, in Australia is that because of the foot and mouth free status in this country and, you know, how good Australia's quarantine has been at, at keeping disease out. I mean, it's helpful that we're an island, but I, the movement of species, like particularly, say, feral pigs, there's a lot of laws restricting how much movement of animals from hunting could be moved around the country for use in pet food and things. The, the big concern is foot and mouth disease. An outbreak in Australia would be catastrophic for particularly for cattle um, industry. But look, I think, you know, with more focus on sustainability and reducing the eco paw print uh, for your pet and, you know, coming up with eco innovative uses of meat and things, using utilising the land better, I think it's super important that we start to explore these options with a, a, a better lens and, and stop sort of using bureaucracy to you know stop this this happening um i think that the cull it is very wasteful when i looked at the camel situation they were saying like the the cost of the petrol to you know collect the deceased camels that had been culled in aerial shoots was was not worth the commercialization of the meat and things like that so i think it's important to have innovative strategies for value adding and you know using for example like okay if the camel's too difficult to get then at least harvest like the pancreas and it could be used as a, you know, for digestive enzyme supplementation or something. Just trying to uh, look at things with a little bit more depth. To answer your question about using venison, I think that it's really important to focus on the local parasite risks and things and talk to, hopefully talk to local vets that have got an interest in natural feeding. I think it's really important um, that people listening really ask their vets for help on this because at the moment what's happening is that there's the, you know, the online camps of people that are really perpetuating um, natural feeding and uh, often the information is very good but I think that if people keep asking their vets about you know natural feeding and it's certainly a lot more receptive than it used to be vets will really need to um, start prioritizing learning more in that area a lot of vets particularly if there's time constraints will you know have to say no to something that's complex and takes hours of time to to really come up with hours and hours and hours of time to empower a family to do it properly and so that's another thing like unfortunately medicine veterinary and human uh is based on very small time frames like mm -hmm. the uh, we like the consult that i had with you initially was probably allocated it was allocated
allocated as an hour, but we uh, we usually go over, yeah. um, you know, and then follow up with a written report that we usually put in another couple of hours worth of work. Um, it was incredible. And uh, it's why I keep coming back because I was just so used to my 15 minute slots and then being kicked out mm. with really, you know, being told, sorry, there's nothing we can do. Mm. Yeah, look, I think um, I wish everyone had more time. Again, that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this is because this is things that I have to talk to people about every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's a little bit of autopilot. But, uh, you know, Bart, it, it always needs to come back to the individual family and the individual animal and, and deciding on what's working and not working for them. Okay, what's the next step? Can we talk a little bit about CBD? Yeah, let's talk about CBD. I think that I want to raise the concept of chemo prevention because that kind of ties into both nutrition and, and, and cancer. So chemo protection, sorry, chemo prevention is the use of potentially drugs, um, vitamins, functional nutrients, nutrition to prevent cancer from developing in a dog. So that's a, I think it's going to be a very hot topic um, in the future because really with conventional medicine, we have hit, I mean, there's definitely leaps and bounds with research and things coming up, but a lot of cancers have hit what's known as a therapeutic plateau where we haven't really, we've learned a lot more about the biology of cancer, but we haven't really improved our clinical outcomes um, in the last 50 years with a lot of cancers. So chemo prevention um, normally incorporates diet. Um, I'd direct people to read about Gregor Olgivi's research um, in, into the anti-cancer diet for dog, which is high omega-3, um, ultra-low glycemic index carbs, uh, moderate meat content. So that's, a uh, you know, if people research um, him, and I might, I'll send you some links mm -hmm. as well, you know, that ties in with anti-cancer. Uh, substances like um, curcumin from turmeric, um, turmeric and rosemary extract being used together, spirulina, astaxanthin, um, which Colby's on. Um, He's on all of those things, except for yeah. the rosemary. No, because um, yeah, not every dog needs every uh, right. every sort of. I mean, there's there's uh, literally thousands of of um, plant compounds that have some demonstrated anti neoplastic or anti cancer effect in the lab or in you know small animal models and things. Um, so it's, uh, we don't have to pick all of them, but no, normally but it's best Colby's to do a few. Nine, something like nine or so. Yeah, just for people listening who are wondering, you know, if if they're thinking they need a hundred or if they think they need two. Just for me personally, I think Colby's on nine. Yeah. It's a, and it's a cocktail. We don't know what exactly is working, but something's working, so we're just leaving. Yeah, so normally what, what I try and do um, and explain to people with, with management of cancer that's already there is that we don't need uh, all of the supplements to help. We just need one to fit the lock is normally what I explain to people that, you know, we're trying, you've got to think of about like trying to pick a password and, you know, hopefully by, you know, uh, using a few uh, natural um, nutrients, like functional nutrients and herbs and things um, and drugs where we think they're appropriate, that we really just make it unfavorable for the cancer to progress and hopefully for it to regress. Um, and I think I'm, we probably talked about the terms of that um, we want to take the foot off the accelerator. Um, we may not be able to get the car into reverse with this cancer, but we really need to take the foot off the accelerator, hopefully put the brakes on, but we may not be able to get the cancer completely spontaneously gone. And dogs can do really well for a long time just having had the brakes put on and the cancer's there and just sits there in suspended animation 
doesn't cause any problems and they can live out their days. So what we're trying to look at now, particularly in our practice, we've been doing this for 16 years in this practice, is saying, all right, well, we've um, uh, been fortunate enough to collect a lot of information and work with a lot of um, particularly oncologists who refer to us for tertiary care, like complementary care to their protocols as well. Um, we've been able to look at a lot of the substances that we use to treat cancer and actually say, hey, these are starting to emerge as preventative agents. Uh, so supplementing with these higher risk animals or animals where they have other benefits. Uh, for example, if a dog has some osteoarthritic issues, um, then cannabidiol has got clinical evidence um, at a double-blinded random controlled trial. Um, yeah. What is it? Cannabis? CBD. It is. Can you just yeah. explain to people listening what CBD is? Yeah. So CBD, cannabidiol, it's, um, it's one of the endocannabinoids found in cannabis sativa. Um, and certainly there's a lot of other cannabinoids. Um, so, uh, but cannabidiol is the one that's got a lot of um, focus at the moment with a lot of the other endocannabinoids sort of uh, as an entourage to that. But uh, we, we could talk for hours and hours about what ratios of say THC and CBD are important and things like that. But really... Uh, at this stage, what I wanted to sort of point out is that what we do in our practice and what I normally say to people is, okay, you're presenting to me with your dog that has a skin problem or a mobility problem. Let's try to create a positive side effect that this has a that this may, fingers crossed, and it's not perfect, that we might try and use a chemo preventative strategy as a positive side effect. So if you come to me and I think that your dog would benefit from turmeric, uh, which most dogs would benefit from turmeric, that's definitely a supplement that I'd peop- uh, suggest people look at. And I'd recommend that people look at um, Planet Pause by Rodney Habib for some really good information on uh, sort of supplement supplementing um, with different supplements at different times of the year even. Turmeric ginger, for example, will warm dogs up in winter. So it's good, good in winter. But if someone comes to see me and I'm trying to get their dog, you know, I'm seeing their dog for wellness, skin, mobility, I might choose something that in my mind has some anti-cancer sway in the hope that we can try and prevent cancer in the future. So normally when we start with people adopting new pet, uh, new family members, we tend to do an Olgevy style diet. So the natural feeding, we tend to utilize vegetables, even at some green veg and some um, orange veg to your pet's food can reduce the risk of um, certain cancers. So we, you know, we do that. We think about adding things like turmeric, etc. If we have a younger dog or, or cat or any pet that we think needs to have some rehab to their gut to improve their their gut um, bacteria and that sort of thing. We identify trying to get to the root cause of those problems in a younger pet. We think, and certainly there's pockets of evidence here that uh, that that can try and stop the inflammation and stop the hoops that the cancer might need to jump through before it really takes off as a highly uh, aggressive cancer later on in life. Okay, so CBD, how do, is that one of those yeah. agents? So CBD, yeah, CBD's got uh, emerging evidence as a um, an anti-neoplastic, anti-proliferative treatment for, uh, sorry, treatment's probably not the right word, uh, a substance that has the possibility of having clinical application for cancer research. The problem with um, trying to prove that a substance can prevent 
cancer in a decade's time uh, is that they're huge studies. They're huge studies. So to get uh, like a conventional level of evidence where say the FDA would approve it. Um, so to, to have a drug come to market um, or a nutraceutical or what nowadays we're looking more at, which is called a phytopharmaceutical. So it's kind of a pharmaceutical grade herbal blend, trying to get that to market to say, you know, to have a label claim on it that says this will prevent cancer in your pet like it's just uh, uh, there's too much litigation there's unethics in it as well because it's I think it can be a false hope and misleading and things um, that often doesn't happen so what we try and say is like we just try and get you know a few positive side effects um, when we're using things cannabidiol it's um, been yeah demonstrated to have osteoarthritic um, pain relieving aspects um, I think you know it's pretty established that it has some uh, anti uh, neuropathic pain so nerve pain effects um, as well as a lot of other effects um, on both the immune system and also the hormonal system so what we like about that is where is taking a really refined drug, um, say, you know, meloxicam or meloxicam or paracetamol for dogs, which low-dose paracetamol, yeah, people need to talk to their vets about doing that and definitely don't do it in a cat. Um, in fact, don't give any drugs without talking to your vet. Those drugs only do one thing. They do, you know, what they say they're going to do. Um, they don't have positive side effects. They have negative side effects generally. So what we try and do... So they just take the pain away. Yeah, they'll or reduce the inflammation. Down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... With uh, with bone cancer, for example, like the reason that we're like we're using CBD is that there's some pain relieving effects. Um, there's emerging evidence to say that it's anti cancer. There's uh, stress relieving effects if a pet feels that something's not quite right in their body, and it, it supports the immune system. And we know that uh, osteosarcoma is a uh, which is bone cancer is a very immune um, driven cancer, um, raising the quality of the immune system and the impact and um, activity of the immune system can um, help reduce, doesn't necessarily get rid of a bone cancer that's there, but it can help reduce the um, spread to the, the lungs and things. Um, and, you know, that's a big treatment goal for us is trying to get his immune system to do its job properly. And the cancer cells in the body have a lot of mechanisms and essentially an invisibility cloak that kind of can stop that process. So we're just continually trying to lift the support the immune system. There's an interesting study, uh, interesting fact and study that, that dogs that go ahead with amputation, which can be reasonable in some instances, in a lot of instances, amputations are, is what I would recommend. Dogs that got infections after their amputation had increased survival times from the cancer. So what they think is that because an infection would get the immune system fired up to do something about it. They think that it's also at the same time that the body's going through, the immune system's kind of going through the body and searching out and you know, neutralizing infection that it goes through and neutralizes cancer at the same time. Um, and so that's like immunotherapy, uh, which is ways to try and boost the immune system, which is, you know, generally the cornerstone of nutrition and herbal medicine. Um, but more, nowadays, more use of um, uh, 
immunoglobulin treatments and infusions and a whole host of quite advanced medical uses of you know manipulating the immune system probiotics lift the immune system the, this this is a new approach to cancer that was really denied for a long time that this has a place versus using chemicals to to poison the cancer that this strategy can you know be beneficial especially for bone cancer and one thing that I talked about earlier that I wanted to really have a shout out for is that when we look at translational medicine and comparative medicine which is looking at saying okay bone cancer happens in humans and dogs is is the dog a good research model for uh, looking at uh, improving um, this survival outcomes and clinical outcomes for people with this type of cancer and what we're finding is that most of the common nasty dog cancers have a lot of biological similarity to human uh, medicine Um, and so it Com, uh, dogs are a really good what, what they're calling in comparative oncology and comparative medicine really good surrogate model for human research and what it also allows is that because um, dogs age faster than we do and aren't unfortunately everyone wants them around for a lot longer aren't for, around for as long as we would love they're a really good model for sort of seeing improvements like you know I think already you know, people see improvement like, you know, when you're given a two-week survival outcome perhaps and, you know, up to say even if the four-month, which is normally the medium survival time, medium survival time for osteosarcoma, moving beyond that, you can quickly see, oh, maybe we're on to something. Um, whereas in human medicine, that can take two to five years to really know. Right, yeah. So I think that, and certainly this is an area that resonates a lot with me because what we're trying to do in this clinic is say, we've been doing this for a long time. We want to try and get research funding to you know, start doing clinical trials and doing trials to really back up what we're doing um, because we've done enough cancer care using the pockets of evidence that there is and translating from what's been done in human medicine, what's been done in rats and mice and putting that into a model of naturally occurring cancer in dogs that's quite ethical to to try to save dogs when there's no other options. When people come to see me and I say, look, I really want to use, say, um, bilberry extract um, because the anthocyanins in bilberry have been shown to be toxic to cancer cell lines in humans. There's no research in dogs. But what I can tell you is that the research says if you do nothing, um, the outcome is not good or, you know, you can't, people can't afford $30,000 worth of chemotherapy, but they want to try something, let's use Coriolis mushroom then or, you know, and CBD and turmeric and let's see what we can do. I can't tell you that, you know, 85% of these dogs are going to be around in two years. But what I can tell you is doing nothing is is not going to go well. Um, and a lot of families with that kind of consent and understanding and clarity, and certainly that's a big part of why I put this in writing for families to read through and, you know, what, you know, what I presented to you back then was to say this is an opportunity to try and um, save your family member, um, feel peace of mind that you're doing something um, and hopefully this will start to translate to you know saving human lives. Cancer is expected to go up, um, like the prevalence of cancer is expected to get worse. It's a major epidemic. Um, it's horrible and it's a really, it's a real disease and it affects everyone. Like there's no one on this planet that hasn't been affected by cancer and I think that to be able to have a win-win-win. The win is that, you know, we can help animals 
directly. We can help humans by translational medicine and capturing good quality research. Um, and three, we can help the environment because herbal medicine, it puts oxygen in the environment. It, you know, it can regenerate soils. It can provide good livelihoods for people in the developing world. Um, it can support animal conservation. One of the projects that I've been talking to the Indian government about actually is trying to get people that live um, in West Bengal, which is one of the, is the most um, poorest region in uh, India. They have the world's biggest and healthiest um, population of um, Bengal tigers like living near them. But a lot of those families either have to turn to crime, including poaching or, you know, opioid, um, like opium growing and illegal cultivation and things, or just, uh, you know, harvesting, over harvesting from the land in, a, in you know, a way that in the developed world, we've got the, the privilege of being able to be educated to sustainably harvest and minimize our impact and things. But if someone's got uh, 10 starving kids and they, you know, want to poach a tiger to put their kids into school, etc., herbal medicine could be a way to do that. So what we're doing on the ground here and having these conversations and like I hope the people listening, you know, resonates with where they're at with living in tune with nature. This is a, a way forward that can be a real triple win. You're right. I never really thought about it from that from that stance. Yeah. Can I ask you something about that plan? Just you mm -hmm. triggered something while you were talking there. I remember it had said in the plan, you know, if you do chemo, just note that we can't go down a lot of the path that we're talking about holistically. Mm -hmm. And that really uh, stressed me out, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. Yeah. Because I really felt like I had to choose one or the other. And I and I still feel today like I chose the right way. But what what, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so there's, there's a leap of faith and we can't always crystal ball which way is the right road. Um, and normally, often we have to reflect back on uh, our work. I mean, I had a very long conversation with a client yesterday. A dog um, didn't make it where... We really have to, yeah, try and pick a path and stick with it. Like, you know, doing an amputation is not reversible. I mean, we do a lot of complementary care. So we do do a lot of work with um, oncologists and we work really well together and we try and come up with better outcomes together. And certainly in human medicine, adding complementary cancer care to cancer, you know, can improve outcomes. There's a 30-year study in Japan that says that people that add mushrooms to whatever chemo protocol they're doing have better five-year survival times over 30 years. It's big, big impact stuff. But... Yeah, there's certain approaches that that don't really go well together. Certain nu nutrients, um, like uh, there's a broccoli extract that we now know protects cancer cells from doxyrubicin, which is a type of cancer. We we need to, you know, potentially stop some herbs for a few days before and after chemotherapy, things like that. The main reason why I gave you the options, and you know, ultimately it was your choice which way to go, but why it leaves you with stress versus me telling you is it's you know not my family member. And so that's why I normally say, here's the, you know, I'm not telling you which one to do, you know, go, go with what resonates better with you is that the survival outcomes aren't great. So going ahead with, I mean, oncologists might report that they're doing better than this at the moment, but by and large, a lot of the time, moving ahead with uh, amputation and then follow up uh, adjunctive therapy with chemotherapy for a malignant bone cancer, it tends to, generally speaking, tends to add something like three to six months. But within that three to six months, we're recovering from an amputation, um, which some dogs can do you know, incredibly well with that. 
generally younger dogs, um, dogs that don't have arthritis in the body elsewhere. And then the chemotherapeutic agents, are they, they can have quite severe side effects. And so with that, the decision is, okay, do we want them to have a good year or, um, or a good six months or a good three months where they don't have to undergo surgery or do we want them to have a you know, you have to overcome a surgery. And often it depends on what the vet, the dog's like at the vets as well. Like if a dog's scared of the vets, like I'm not going to send them for IV cancer uh, chemo or not recommend that they do that because it's, you know, that if a dog hates the vets, that's a, that's an important decision-making aspect of it. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately that means that it's left with you guys as, as pet guardians to have to decide what you want for your family member and we just try and provide as much evidence um, for, you know, one way or the other. Oftentimes you can kind of move pick and choose and you know try one path first the big one is that if you um if someone decides that they want to go down an alternative medicine route and really shun any conventional um, particularly chemotherapy etc if the science statistically shows that they're, they're likely to do much better with the chemotherapy which is often what i counsel for lymphoma um normally i say no go do the chemo if you can afford it and your dog's up for it your dog can handle it both behaviorally and distance etc and we'll use um, herbs to chemo protect which means use herbs and, and nutritional strategies to protect the body from chemo so to protect the liver protect the kidneys and maybe also improve the outcome of chemo vitamin d um, calcitriol has been proven to improve cisplatin's effect which is a chemotherapeutic agent so dogs could have better response to chemo by having vitamin d added to it um, but that's not widespread um, olgevy diet which is you know published in 2010 you know it's a diet that has been proven to improve um, outcomes with dogs that have cancer so you know that's a another nutritional aid to to chemotherapy as well so generally you can if you start down an alternative route what we really want to ensure is that people don't then later go oh i wish i'd have done chemo and that's when i should say well you should have done it you know three months ago then so we need a lot of clarity with that um, a lot of the time people start chemo and then go to alternative when it you know when they can't tolerate the drugs anymore or they finish a protocol and then the cancer, unfortunately, it's a strong disease. Um, the cancer pops up again somewhere else or in the same spot. And then the second time they're like, look, we can't do it emotionally or uh, we can't put our dog through that again. The side effect profile was too too much for us, um, which is often it's not extreme, the side effects that people see from chemo. And we don't push animals as, as much as humans do. Like if I said to you, you're going to feel terrible, you're going to take these drugs, you're going to feel poisoned and you know you need to mentally prepare for that. So, And with the view that if you poison yourself for six months, you might have an extra 10 years. Like I can tell you that and you can decide about that, but a dog can't. So we don't do that for um, chemotherapy in pets. That's just not fair ethically. No. There's a lot of decision-making. There is a lot of decision making. Yeah. yeah. What percent of dogs do you see come in where the owner thinks that it's arthritis, but it's actually bone cancer? Uh, yeah, it happens. Um, 5%. Okay. So 10. that's actually not as much as I it's thought. It's not. Uh, yeah. In our, in our clinic. No. Yeah. It's, it's, it does happen though. How yeah. can you tell the difference between the two? X-ray. Yeah. Oh, okay, but from the exterior, you can't. No, it depends if there's if there's major swelling and things. It really depends on the lo like trying to localize where the pain's the pain is or being referred from, and you know other risk factor identification. For example, rot rottweilers have a really high incidence of bone cancer. 
Yeah, yeah. Why do some species have higher rates of cancer than others? Breeds. Um, so or some breeds. Yeah. Very difficult to identify. Um, it normally comes down to some balance of genetics, hered- um, hormonal um, factors. Um, uh, yeah, genetics and epigenetics. So normally it's like hormonal, nutri- nutritional. Time of desexing is a big, a contentious topic, which we could, you know, yeah. pro- probably have to do as another uh, topic in itself. Do I you mean, believe in that? Uh, what that desexing can have an impact on um, on different health risks. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, the evidence shows that, but it's. Really really breed specific and timing specific. You know, you look at the research um, and it, there's a lot of research out there. I can send you a link on, on it. You know, some uh, malignant cancers, like the risk goes up after 12 months and the risk is less, less than 12 months. Or, you know, say in a female Rottweiler, the risk goes up threefold, three times higher risk of having bone cancer if she's desexed than entire. But then in the same study, they found that dogs that are desexed live longer. So it's tricky. It's really, you know, a lot, uh, a lot of contention at the moment um so normally it's best to every breed's different and cancer is a different one thing that i will say is that nowadays we're using a lot more biomarkers isoprostane vitamin d checking highly sensitive uh, c-reactive protein when we're doing our wellness checks nowadays like if 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 someone comes in with a seven-year-old dog like i'll say okay what's what's their anti-arthritic if they're a three-year-old large breed dog what's their anti-arthritic strategy you know they're mature let's do a CRP to see what their inflammatory markers are doing because if they're a little bit inflamed on this blood test now, we'll try and get that back down to normal. And that's where I look at their tongue and say, that dog looks inflamed to me. And yeah, we're looking at yeah a bunch of like salivary um, isoprostane cell bios, a new test that we're, we're just trying to do a bit more research and validate whether we're happy to sort of, sort of recommend that to our families as a screening tool for cancer. We uh, export a lot of our um, samples to the US for testing. Um, we do um, a lot of CRP, vitamin D, looking into tyrosine kinase, which is another marker of, of cancer. We're using Orovet, which is a DNA tester to look at um, cancer risk in, in DNA of, of pet saliva and really trying to come up with personalized strategies to, you know, um, prevent these things. What about vaccines? Have you, I mean, you go on the internet and everyone's saying vaccines cause bone cancer. Yeah. Um, you know, vaccines are a highly contentious issue. Um, I support strategic vaccination I definitely don't support unnecessary vaccination over vaccination I think it's a big problem the links are tenuous to like I don't think there's any proof or disproof that vaccines cause cancer but the main thing that uh, you know I say with vaccines is most of the drug manufacturer instructions say only give to healthy dogs um, so if a dog's had like a long history of allergies or inflammatory bowel disease or has had pancreatitis or has arthritis has had a, a cancer scare in the past, like a malignant, uh, like a low grade malignant, say, mast cell tumor three years ago. I counsel the families I work with that they're never healthy again, in my view. Um, like healthy doesn't mean, okay, they can come in, they're wagging their tail, um, they're bright, they're, they're fine today. I normally try and say, all right, well, osteoarthritis has inflammatory aspects to it. Like, so I'm going to say that's not a great idea on a risk benefit, particularly when you can try to test the blood and prove that they've got protection still anyway. But then one thing that is quite established is um, there's a a really intense disease, which is very traumatic for families to experience uh, alongside bone cancer, which is immune-mediated hemolytic anemia. It's an attack on the red blood cells. Yes, this is Um, something that a ton of people have messaged me about. And I've had to say, I I just, we don't have it as far as I know. Yeah. What is it? 
Um, so there's a, a trigger of the immune system that happens and the body just starts recognizing the red blood cells as foreign and it will destroy them until there's no red blood cells left and they become anemic and it, it's, it's life-threatening and they will die without treatment. It's super scary. The two-week survival times are 50-50 um, generally. Um, I'm not sure about the exact latest on that, but it's very scary. They often need blood transfusions, intense hospitalization and chemotherapy. Uh, I do a lot of work with immune mediated disease. How does um, someone know if their dog has that? Oh, they're sick. Oh, they're just, are they coughing? Are they? Lethargic, coughing, white gums collapsed it's nasty um that's generally unfortunately it's one of the ones like the malignant cancers particularly spleen bone cancer that people find out you know very late in the process um that's happened and you like a lot of the reasons why i see a lot of it is the same reason that you found our clinic is that these these catastrophic diagnoses which are often they're not always preventable, but there's, you know, there's room to, you know, a lot of them, I believe, could have been prevented with, you know, more upstream medicine um, or e- earlier identification or screening. But that's also not perfect. Um, sometimes it's just really bad luck. But we meet a lot of families because they're, you know, up at two o'clock in the morning using the internet um, try and come across us through forum. Um, a lot of our clients here are huge advocates for what we do um, because there's stories like, you know, yours. Mine, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've got a lovely community. We have, you know, great families that we work with. Um, can you do remote counselling or are you limited? Uh, yeah, we do do telemedicine. Um, it can work really well. People need patience and people need to be prepared to have like quite a lot of conversations to generally do it well. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes if it's a young pet, one care plan that we write and say, you know, do this, don't do this do this, you know, set them up on this diet, uh, decline, uh, politely decline this uh, recommendation from your local vet or, you know, challenge your vet or have a discussion about this, you know, that might see that pet doing really well for their whole lifetime and, you know, they, uh, and that's that. Uh, definitely with telemedicine, we work with um, primary care practitioners, so local vets to ensure that they're getting veterinary care locally. And then we might, normally what we do is we like review the medical records. So someone's examined the dog, we might have blood work, results Um, so we'll review all of that and have a conversation and normally come up with some sort of uh, way that we can help can I include a link to how to contact you for that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if it's people overseas, some I have to be like depends on what state they're in. But normally, what we can do is say, look, uh, provided we can talk to to people and say, look, I'm not your vet. I've done training in herbal medicine and um, Chinese nutritional therapy. I can do some patient advocacy online or direct someone to that might be in a state or territory that's better suited or regulatory is, is you know a better option. Um, but yeah, certainly the global network of holistic vets is small. Yeah, you know, yeah, like you know, out. you know, Alberta, like we, you know, import their herbs because they've got great herbs that they that they manufacture up there. So we import them into Australia, and they're, they're the herbs that, that Colby's on. So we is that uh, the Chinese stuff? Yeah, yeah, natural path. What is that that he's on? Is he, he's on Simasan. Yeah, that's yes. it. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember because they're on a lot of different combinations. Yeah, he's on Simasan and he's on Hoxie and Boneset formula. Right, but not yeah. every dog should be on that. Not nece- no, not necessarily. It's a, it's a stronger one. It really depends on how much um, supplement the dog can really eat, and you know, budget comes into it, and you know, flavor. Like, uh, and some dogs will like some things or need some things based on their their internal energetics. Like, if a dog's really hot or really cold, um, or really like exhausted, you know, they might need more 
energy supporting herbal formulas, but um, hoxie and bone set is pretty strong. So I want dogs to be fairly robust with their digestion before we put them on that. Right. Um, but yeah, Simasan, it's got koi, which is a source of vitamin D. Oh, sorry, um, koi's got omega-3 in it. It's got philodendron, which is a source of berberine. Um, so, you know, these, uh, a lot of bioflavonoids um, in that formula. So a lot, it, it's very much antioxidant therapy, those, those herbs. But, you know, those herbs are really good quality. So we, we import them here. Okay, I just have one last question for you because I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours, days upon you know mm-hmm. about this stuff. And I know your time is limited. Um, just water should do- should dog owners be worried about the water they're feeding? The, yeah, the delivering. Look, uh, it's a good question. Um, there have been concerns raised about, uh, raised about fluoride and, and bone cancer in particular. And um, that's been there's been a study I think out of LA County Water that showed that that wasn't um, a significant factor. Um, look, I think that filtering water for heavy metals and filtering water can be a good idea. I don't necessarily think it needs to be alkaline for for dogs or anything like that. I just think it's important that it's it's pretty clean uh, out in nature. I think that you know if if a dog's lifestyle risks it, that they're going to drink water that's got giardia from fox feces and, and whatnot, then, you know, that needs to be the appropriate worming regime needs to be discussed on an individual risk benefit analysis with the vet. But yeah, by and large, I think town water, um, you know, it's 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 problematic sometimes. Um, certainly, you know, if you hear about like what happened in, where was it? A city near Detroit where they changed the water and then kids got lead poisoning, really disastrous. There's, there's a lot of things. I think probably Probably more important than water is, uh, you know, seeing what local councils are spraying in the in the par- in the dog parks. Uh-huh. You know, that's a big one, and what people are spraying in their backyards and what they're mopping their floors with. Because think about a cat or a dog, cats in particular, tiny little creatures walk across chemical floors and then lick their paws, getting oh huge gosh, doses of, of toxin. Um, so, you know, they say they say that a lot of the biggest source of carcinogens is normally under the kitchen sink um, in households. Um, so I think that protecting your, like cancer-proofing your environment, like, you know, you can Google that and uh, or use Ecosia, which um, rather than Google Ecosia, every search plants a tree. So, you know, it's a good one. But uh, yeah, people can look at cancer-proofing their house. I think that's relevant for a dog. Okay. Yeah. Um, look, I'll let you go because you do have a big drive. Um, yep. Is there anything that you would like to add while I have you here? Oh, just thank you for engaging um, with me to do this and entrusting me um, with your family's care. Like, you know, it's it's a major compliment that people, you know, drive across town to come and see us and support us and ultimately uh, hope that like one day, you know, we can all look back on, you know, what we're trying to achieve in this practice and in integrative medicine and say, well, really, that was the kind of turning point where integrative medicine really became mainstream it's happening now like it's really happening and particularly in sydney a very health conscious society um, people are very health empowered and so i think it's great that uh, out of sydney there's you know the next generation is like really empowered health for pets um, and that it can have big impacts um, on a global scale so yeah thanks for your time thank you for your time yeah, happy and to i'll help. include a bunch of links in the write-up cool thanks again and that concludes this episode of anchored thank you for listening 